Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Paul Moneys has been covering Oklahoma's reaction to the pandemic since it began a year and a half ago. This week, the state reached a grim milestone, tallying its 10,000th death from the virus. Paul, is the state making any progress at all getting people vaccinated? It is, but we're in a real grinded out phase of vaccinations now. Uh, Oklahoma started really strong earlier this year when demand was very high. And at one point, we were definitely a top 10 state in uh, COVID vaccinations. But as all the phases opened up and those most interested in the jabs got their doses, demand kind of slacked a bit off uh, in late spring and early summer. Where uh, where are the weak spots? Um, well, we've basically got weak spots in both geography and age groups, and to an extent among some eth- racial and ethnic groups. Um, generally, across the state, rural eastern parts of the state have, have lagged vaccination rates and uh, of their suburban areas, kind of in the state's two largest cities. Uh, but in our latest analysis of zip code vaccination data from the state health department, we've seen some improvement in zip codes in the southeastern part of the state and in communities along Interstate 44 corridor, which kind of cuts diagonally across the street. They've started to get closer to the statewide average rate for the fully vaccinated, which now stands at almost 47 uh, percent. Unfortunately, that rate is still lower than the 55 percent we see at the national level. And we're also seeing some differences of vaccinations by age group. Uh, the over 65 population, which of course suffered most of the deaths and hospitalizations in the first part of the pandemic, now have the highest vaccination rates. Uh, those re- rates start to decline as you get to the younger age groups. And of course, the vaccine isn't yet available for children younger than 12. Although emergency approval for children 5 to 11 is expected to come in late October or November, at least for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, now, as far as race in Oklahoma, we're seeing Asian and Pacific Islander people with the highest vaccination rates at 59 percent followed by whites at 40%, blacks at 30%, and Native Americans at 25%. Uh, Hispanics, which of course can be of any race, currently have a fully vaccinated rate of 43%. Well, that's at, you mentioned the national rate uh, being higher than the states. How is Oklahoma tracking uh, compared to both the national rate and surrounding states? Well, we're, we're definitely lagging the nation as a whole. Uh, we're currently 40th among all the states for our fully vaccinated rate, which, of course, is, is 47% right now. Uh, among our neighboring states, only Arkansas has a worse rate, and it's only not by much, probably a percentage point or two uh, worse than Oklahoma. Um, among our you know, six surrounding states, New Mexico is by far the best uh, performer. It's at number nine nationally and has 63% of their population who are fully vaccinated. Wow. Hey, you know, as this has gone on, Paul, we've seen hospitals at times just bursting at the seams uh, during this pandemic. What's what's the situation with the hospitals now? Well, the latest Delta surge for hospitalizations came on very quickly over late July and August, and has only now just begun to decline from its recent peak of more than 1,600 people uh, a day in the hospital for COVID. Um, this time, the problem has been most acute in intensive care beds. Um, Hospitals are dealing with staffing issues that predated the pandemic, but we're also seeing staff burnout 18 months into it. Uh, Many of our state's hospitals, especially those regional hospitals in smaller cities, have been particularly hard hit um, by a shortage of staffed ICU beds. And the larger hospital systems in Oklahoma City and Tulsa have also seen low ICU availability, but unfortunately don't have the room to accept patients who are transferring from smaller communities across the state, too. And 
those patients that are filling up those beds, who are they? Uh, well, Ted, unfortunately, they're mostly uh, people who have not been vaccinated. Uh, more than 90% of the hospitalizations in the past month have been patients who are unvaccinated. Um, the Delta variant is causing more severe symptoms for those people, and they're staying longer in ICU beds, putting further strain on the healthcare system across the state. Uh, doctors and nurses are also seeing younger patients, particularly in the 30 to 50 age ranges, coming in and needing a lot of care. Uh, I mean, that's a huge difference from the earlier part of the pandemic uh, when the majority of those needing hospital cares were over 65. I would imagine, though, those that are older or, or have other conditions even more problematic if they're not vaccinated. That's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the comorbidities among those age groups with, with you know, pre-existing conditions uh, is not good for, for those who are unvaccinated uh, right now. Well, thanks, Paul. Listeners can find all the current COVID data at OklahomaWatch.org. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice, and this week he looked into one of those topics that's full of speculation and misinformation, the rights of condemned prisoners. The new attorney general, John O'Connor, pushed seven executions onto the state schedule, which will be the first since the series of botched procedures back when Scott Pruitt was in the AG's office. Keaton, this topic came up not only because Oklahoma has seven executions scheduled in a five-month window, but because the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that could broaden rights for the condemned. What's that about? Sure. So uh, the Supreme Court case uh, is brought on by a Texas death row prisoner. Uh, his name is John Henry Ramirez. Uh, he was scheduled to be executed uh, in early September. And uh, weeks before his execution, he asked prison officials if he could bring his pastor into the death chamber uh, and let him lay hands on him as he's uh, injected with the lethal drugs and put to death. Um, the prison officials denied the request, citing safety issues, uh, but Ramirez's legal team appealed the decision, uh, and that appeal actually moved all the way up to the Supreme Court, uh, which is set to hear arguments in the case uh, sometime in October or November. Um, a ruling in favor of Ramirez uh, could set the precedent that, yes, death row prisoners are allowed to have a spiritual advisor um, of some sort in in the chamber with them as they're put to death. Okay. Uh, some Oklahoma death row prisoners have a lawsuit against the state that'll go to trial next year. Is that going to help postpone their deaths? Sure, yeah. The, the lawsuit is challenging the state's lethal injection protocol, specifically uh, the sedative that's injected uh, in the first part of that, that protocol. Um, Ultimately, if the if the judge sides with the prisoners and determines that the state's uh, lethal injection protocol is unconstitutional, uh, that could po postpone their death uh, even further uh, because state officials would be forced to find an alternative method, um, whether that be nitrogen gas or even uh, state law also permits firing squad um, if lethal injection and, and nitrogen gas are either not available or unconstitutional. Um. You mentioned uh, nitrogen, you know, gas chambers and electric chairs, gallows, guillotines, right? They've all uh, all gone uh, gone to the past. Um, but when the drugs called for in Oklahoma's execution protocol become scarce, uh, as they were a couple of years ago, um, talk a little more about what other means can be used to execute somebody in the state. Sure, yeah. So state law permits nitrogen gas and uh, execution by firing squad, as I mentioned earlier. 
Um, and the nitrogen gas issue came up uh, three or four years ago. Um, state officials announced their plans to use it. Um, that drew a lot of concern and criticism from uh, some advocacy group and, and anti-death penalty uh, voices out there um, questioning the method, you know, stating that it, it hadn't been used in any other states and there were concerns on about if it would be ethical or not. Um, ultimately, the state moved away from those plans uh, in 2020 after they got um, lethal injection drugs. Um, but if ultimately the court rules that the state can't do um, lethal injections under its current protocol, uh, we could see um, nitrogen gas come back into the conversation. Although I do recall uh, former prisons director Joe Albaugh um, telling the press, like, I've, I've called, you know, places across the world trying to get this drug and he couldn't get it. So that, that could be a struggle for the state. Now, does the governor have the power at his discretion to commute a death sentence in Oklahoma? Sure. The governor has that power if the, the state pardon and parole board re recommends commutation. Um, a recommendation from the governor is pretty rare, um, but it has happened before. For example, former Governor Brad Henry commuted three death sentences to life without parole during his eight-year term. But here the pardon and parole board has to recommend it first. The governor can't just do it on his own. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, last meals, final phone calls, last rites. Uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff you see in the movies all the time. How does it really work in Oklahoma? Sure. Yeah. So the it basically comes down to the last night. You get the final calls with the exception of your attorney um, and maybe a few other exceptions. And then your last meal um, it has a $25 limit and has to uh, be locally available food in McAllister. You can't go get fancy food from Oklahoma City or anything. Um, and a handful of family members and spiritual advisors may witness the execution, but they're not allowed in the chamber. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Listeners can read Keaton's story about the rights of the condemned at OklahomaWatch.org. Trevor Brown covers state government for Oklahoma Watch, and he's taking a look at the legislature's special session that will finalize redistricting. Trevor, the legislators are getting called back to work. Why is that necessary? Yeah, if you remember, um, almost everyone had to fill out this letter or online form last year from the Census Bureau asking for all sorts of information. That's because the census tries to count everyone in the country every 10 years. There's two reasons for this, to make sure the legislative and congressional districts are fair and have the right number of people, and also so the government knows how to you know, dole out funding to different things. So they are getting into that work. It should have been completed done a while ago, but the Census Bureau had a few delays. So now we're in the spot where a special session is needed to get this done. So they're tweaking some lines that they drew earlier, right? How, how much of the work has already been done? How much are they still going to have to do in this special, special session? Yeah, so there's been a good amount of work already done. Lawmakers have held several public hearings over the year and listing events across the state. They've even been considering maps and ideas for the public. Um, and also because of the state's requirement, the legislature was forced to, re to redraw the state legislative districts um, during the regular session this year. Now, with the final data, they need to come back and tweak some things, but they don't necessarily have to start from scratch. So once they've gone through this special session, however long that may end up taking, what, what are we going to expect to see when they're done with this? 
So we're going to see the new congressional maps. Um, the state's population grew a bit, but we still have the same number of seats. However, there's been a lot of population growth, mostly in the urban areas at the expense of rural areas. So that means there's going to be some significant changes deciding where the boundaries are, how many people are in it, that type of thing. So, um, so if we've seen population growth happening in the the urban cores, really the Oklahoma City metro and the Tulsa uh, metro statistical areas, um, they're they're going to benefit, right? When we redistrict the rural areas out in western Oklahoma, parts with less population um, are going to be the losers in this deal, I would imagine. Can you just talk a little bit about um, how that affects Oklahoma residents in, in real life um, when when more of that power goes to the cities and away from the rural areas? Yeah, so over the past few years, we saw a significant divide in terms of how voters in urban versus rural areas vote. Um, you know, in Congressional District 5, which covers most of Oklahoma County and um, some of the surrounding areas, that has become more of a purple area. So, you know, it's been historically a very conservative, easy win for Republicans. We saw um, a Democrat win two years ago. We saw Representative Stephanie Bice win during the last election. So it would be big to see how that district kind of shaped out how much is, you know, in the urban core of Oklahoma City, how much is kind of in the more rural areas outside of it that could really decide who's a favorite in 2022. And do we expect to see um, kind of a similar shift in Tulsa? Is, is Tulsa leaning more to the center the way Oklahoma City is? There's been a little bit of that. Um, it's been more glaring Oklahoma County. Um, we're seeing in the state legislative districts there, at least in the initial map that they did during the regular session, they had to move a couple seats from the Tulsa area to Oklahoma County. So Oklahoma County would have a little bit more representation on the state legislative um, level. It's, it's still too early to see how that will play out with the congressional districts because there's a lot more moving pieces, especially up there in the, the northeastern part of the state. And is our, our process here in Oklahoma pretty similar to other states, or, or are we unique? Yeah, so almost every other state is in the same position right now as Oklahoma. They need to redraw their maps, but um, we're also, you know, at the same kind of area that everyone else is doing. They're scrambling right now, but I think everyone's going to get it done probably this year. Great. Get the details on redistricting by checking out Trevor's story at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch. You can find those stories on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.